Ready? Mm-hmm. Hello, listeners, and welcome to The Gallery Gap, a podcast that examines equity and inequity in museums, exhibitions, collections, and programming. I'm Claire. And I'm Melissa. We are continuing our conversation about the National Museum of Women in the Arts, or NIMWA. This is the second of a three-part series celebrating the museum's 30th anniversary, the museum, of course, being the inspiration for this podcast. If you missed the first part, which included an interview with NIMWA's director, Susan Fisher-Sterling, we encourage you to stop where you are and take a listen to episode 18. We'll be right here when you return. In this episode, we move from NIMWA's founding to an examination of its collections, exhibitions, and programs, all of which support public engagement with women's artistic accomplishments. Although it is a relatively young collection, NIMWA holds over 5,000 works from the 16th century to the present, created by over 1,000 women artists. In addition to exhibiting works from the permanent collection, NIMWA's special exhibitions rotate and showcase artworks by both established and emerging artists represented by collections around the world. We were fortunate for the opportunity to speak with Ginny Trainer, Associate Curator at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. We asked Ginny to revisit the story of NIMWA's founding from a curatorial angle and then speak to her curatorial practice as it relates to the museum's mission. The story of the collection is integral to understanding the founding of the museum and kind of the genesis of of that idea. And that is that our founder, Wilhelmina Holiday, and her husband Wallace were traveling abroad in, in Europe in the late 1960s, I believe, maybe early 1970s, and were very struck by the works of one artist in particular that they saw at the Prado, and that artist was Clara Paters, who was a 17th century Flemish still-life painter. And the four works by her that are, are housed in the Prado are fantastic examples of, of her, her style and her genre. And they were so intrigued by these paintings. You know, we've never heard about this artist. And so when they came back to the States, they, they wanted to know more. And they really couldn't find anything about her. And then they realized they really couldn't find anything about any women artists, particularly historical women artists. Um, this is, you know, just around the time of the of the women's movement, you know, that it's starting to get going. Um, in this country, the women's lib movement, um, and then in art history as well, you, you kind of have this, this feminist art movement, this women's art movement in, in art history as well, um, that certainly um, encompass what was happening in contemporary arts. You had women like Judy Chicago that were really part of that women's art movement, but also this kind of retroactive um, expanding of the canon and kind of reinserting historical women back into the canon. So that's kind of the the landscape that was, you know, that was happening while the holidays were eventually beginning to collect art by women because they realized there really was, there was no um, scholarly light being, being shined onto these women and a lot of collections, museum collections in particular, um, were not focused on that. So they, to make a very long story short, they decided to focus 
on collecting art by women. So then how is their beginnings, how has that catalyzed the direction of the, the museum in terms of the women that it's collecting today? Yeah. The holiday collection, which forms the core, it was kind of that initial gift that, that began the museum, came from their personal collection. And they really gravitated towards historical art. So we do have examples from the 16th, 17th century. Um, they gravitated towards European and American in particular. But very soon after the museum opened, um, the collection began expanding, not only in size, obviously, but in scope. And there has been, I think, looking back on it over these past 30 years, a really um, purposeful mission to collect and exhibit, which I, we'll talk about in a bit, um, works by women from a, from a wide array of backgrounds. Um, not only speaking about time periods, historical and contemporary, but also um, backgrounds. And so, you know, there is this, this responsibility that we feel to be a global museum in that respect. We, we do. We strive to represent all women artists everywhere. Um, we are a relatively young collection. We're only 30 years old, which, you know, in comparison to, to a lot of other museums, particularly here in D.C., is very young. And so our collection is still growing. It's still expanding. And we have recently been collecting a lot in the contemporary area. And um, that has to do with the fact that we have very generous patrons who collect in that area and then decide to donate with us. But it's also a conscious decision as well. My background is in historical art, so that's my wheelhouse, and that's what I love. Um, and so I'm always on the lookout for that. And we have collected we have collected some historical pieces since I've been here for the past five years as well. But we really strive for a balance, contemporary, historical, modern, in that regard. So in addition to um, to collecting, you're also exhibiting. In fact, when we saw that you had done 300 exhibitions in the past 30 years, this is uh, you've been you've been moving and shaking. I think that's, that's incredibly fun. impressive. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, "That is not that can't be true." But then I, looked, <laughs> I got I that like, from oh you, God, though. It's true, and yeah, no, I mean, it's. Yeah, we're we're always moving here. We're constantly in motion. Um, we are a relatively small staff, and so I think that the amount of work that we get done for the size, you know, proportionally of the size staff we have is really kind of amazing. Not to toot our own horn or anything, um, <laughs> but you can toot. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. but we can. I, I like I like to toot horns when when I can. Um, and when it is deserved. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it's um, it's uh, yeah. I'm in constant motion here, which I love, which I love. So you do a lot of exhibiting too, and some of that you're pulling from your permanent collection, which you were just speaking about, and others you're actually um, you're bringing in exhibitions like Magnetic Fields at the Kemper, and you're doing a lot of these every year. What do you see as being most significant about this? I mean, about just this exhibition yeah. practice? Um, I think one of the most significant things is – the importance of showcasing the breadth and the depth of women's achievements in art. So not only in, quote-unquote, traditional fine art mediums like painting and sculpture, 
but also in things like textiles, you know, quilting, basketry, ceramics, all of these things that have historically been considered, quote-unquote, craft, right, because the division of labor um, and the definition of what art is and what it isn't has historically been gendered and therefore completely arbitrary. And so I think it's really important um, in our exhibition programming, as well as in our collecting practices, I should add, to actively question those divisions and to break down those divisions. Because once you realize that they are so heavily gendered, you know, it, it really starts you questioning, you know, well, why is a painting considered fine art, but a quilt is not? Or why is a sculpture, you know, considered worthy to be in a museum, but maybe this, in an art museum, but maybe this clay vessel isn't? Um, we've also had great exhibitions of photography and video art because those are two areas where women were involved really from the get-go and not as actively excluded or dissuaded from them um, as maybe they had been historically in other realms like painting and sculpture. So I think that belief and that kind of MO is really reflected in our exhibition programming and, and uh, again, also in our collecting practice. I wanted to I wanted to turn our conversation to that exhibition and 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 ask you to situate magnetic fields within the programming for the 30th anniversary of National Museum of Women in the Arts and what was it about that exhibition that you thought was important to to bring in during this this important celebration for the museum and basically just just situate it a little bit big picture for us. Sure. So um yeah, it is our 30th anniversary year, and so we, you know, we knew that in, in planning ahead for it, you know, we really wanted to have programming that was wide and varied and reflected not only who who we are at our core and who we have been to this point, but also who we see ourselves as becoming, um, which is more open Fresher, a champion for women through the arts, kind of all these goals that we have been actively working towards for the past, at least the past five years since I've been here. And so that means not only celebrating artists of the past who are lesser known, kind of an older generation of artists who are lesser known, but also in showcasing up and coming, the up and coming generation of women artists. And Magnetic Fields happily does both of those things simultaneously. So it's it's exposing people to an older generation of African American women artists who have been had and have been practicing abstraction really consistently throughout their careers but then at the same time showcasing this younger generation of of African American women artists who are also practicing in abstraction. And so it's this wonderful kind of moments, because exhibitions are moments, really, um, of being able to demonstrate the the connection between multiple generations of artists um, and educating visitors as to, you know, the kind of um, overlooked history of, of African-American women in in abstract art. 
Well, I think it's that that multi-generational aspect that is so that that really adds to the strength of this exhibition. And I'm, I'm, there, there are also quite a few artists who are still with us today. In fact, many of them came to the opening, which was yes. just such a celebration. Congratulations again on that. Thank you. Yeah, the, it was really, it was really moving. It was to see not only to see them celebrating, but to see people coming up to them and, and talking with them about their art. It's just one of those moments that you dream of when you start scheduling things like this, and when it all <laughs> yeah. comes together. Um, it's, it's just, it, it usually, it, and, and such was the case for your event. It's even better than imagined, I'm sure. Yeah, there was, I just want to say really quickly, there's, um, one artist, Lillian Thomas Burwell, who's 90, who has lived and worked in, in DC pretty much her entire career. And she came in, um, the exhibition wasn't open to the public yet. We were doing kind of a member preview day, and she came in early that morning. And um, she, I brought her into the gallery where her work is displayed. And her work is is very, it hangs on the wall, but it's very sculptural. It's very three-dimensional. And there are these great um, gradations of hues that she has, um, reds and oranges and yellows in her work. And we ended up hanging her work next to an Alma Thomas painting that's in our collection here at NIMWA called Orion that that is also in this wonderful kind of crimson-hued palette. And when she came into that gallery and she saw her work hanging next to Alma Thomas's painting, she started weeping. And because she was so touched that her work was hanging next to that of Alma Thomas, who she knew and her family was very close with, growing, you know, growing up here in, in D.C. And it really touched her that we would that we would put her work next to next to Alma Thomas, who, you know, was even a generation earlier than than Lillian herself. Um, and that was a really powerful moment for me. Definitely, I was I was holding back my own. Team. At that point, like I have to speak to the public. I can't. I can't cry. I can't. But um, it was it was really lovely. That story is such a moving one, and a good place to pause in our interview with Jenny. It was such a pleasure speaking with her. We really could have talked with her all day long. Yeah, we could have. One program that Jenny mentioned that we haven't had time to include from the interview is the Women to Watch program. This program was developed in 2008 in partnership with NIMWA's national and international committees and features emerging and underrepresented artists from communities around the world. Each installment focuses on one material. Past themes have included photography, figure painting, and textile-based art. The 2015 exhibition Organic Matters highlighted the ways in which contemporary artists recontextualize images of plants and animals to reflect on themes of sexuality, gender politics, the abject, and the sublime. We'll let you guess what material is at the center of the upcoming 2018 exhibition entitled Heavy Metal. It opens this coming June. It's totally wood. It's yeah, good. That's, that's, that's what it is. Um, nerd. It's clearly <laughs> sound. It's sound. Uh, be that as it may. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not either of it's those things. Those things. things. No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's metal. It's metal. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna give it to them. Okay. So, we've gone from the National Museum of Women in the Arts founding all the way to the current moment, and then beyond to one of many exciting exhibitions coming in 2018. At this time, we're going to focus in on one of the museum's public programs that really supports the idea that women in the arts can be power catalysts for change. 
This initiative is called Women, Arts, and Social Change and creates a space for women from diverse backgrounds and disciplines to gather and combine their voices for social consciousness and empowerment. The signature program for Women, Arts, and Social Change is Fresh Talk. Fresh Talk assembles prominent women in the arts for creative conversations and champions women through the arts while advocating for social change. Another component of Women, Arts, and Social Change is the program Cultural Capital. Cultural Capital is in partnership with leading D.C. area organizations and helps connect the museum with new audiences around cause-driven programs. This year kicks off the third season of programming, and NIMWA's Director of Public Programs, Milani Douglas, helped us better understand the incredible impact of this initiative. When we spoke with Milani, she was just reaching her three-month mark at NIMWA. To say that she's hit the ground running would be a vast understatement. So digging a little bit deeper into the, the projects that you're, you're working on, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Women, Arts, and Social Change program um, and how it came into existence, what its overarching goal is, and, and how does it connect with the National Museum of Women and the Arts mission? So to my understanding, to, to give you a little bit of information about the genesis of the Women, Arts, and Social Change is, um, one, back in 2008, um, under the recession, one of the one of the programs that one of the uh, departments that was cut at the museum was public programs. And um, and so education fortunately stayed, and some of the public programs began to be, were mainly under education's wheelhouse. And so um, what happened is that I guess maybe about three years ago, um, Lori Martiz, she's now down in Miami, um, and she and Susan Sterling, Susan Sterling wanted to have a arm or a part of the museum that allows us to connect art to what's happening in society and to the women that are moving these changes forward. So this is not always a conversation that's based in the curatorial department or in the education department. The education department is really rooted in the work that's in the building. So there wasn't this signature program that was that was a kind of creating this other space of how do you move outside of this museum bubble and you create these connections to um, the what's happening in this outside world. And so if you think back to what's happened between 2008 and now, I mean, my God, I mean, there's so many changes that have taken place in that time period. And so here you have all of this... Um, fascinating art, these women that are bringing art into this museum, challenging very, you know, deep, complex issues. They're at the forefront of their own emotions and, and presenting it as art. And, and how, do you, how do you honor that and, and honor that process without just putting it as something that stands in a room or on a wall? What can you do beyond it? So Women, Arts, and Social Change was created to activate a community of women that are leading in the arts and other sectors. And so we started this Fresh Talk series. Um, Susie, Lauren, Lori Mertes and Susan Sterling, they started this Fresh Talk series. And um, through this Fresh Talk, we, you know, could have all of these different conversations. I mean, you know, whether it's through the body image, whether it's Carrie Mae Weems and talking about the image of photography, whether we're even looking at how bicycles, you know, change the lives of women because it gave them access to movement. Um, just looking at all of these different layers, and it also, we have a beautiful theater that seats about 200, and it also allowed us to 
reach out to these top women that are making these social changes and put them in conversation with each other and in conversation with our audience. So we get to do some fun stuff. So after on Sundays, we do a Sunday supper, and it is 200 people. And when I tell you, it's, you know, that was one of my my first events here that I was really a part of planning. Like my first week I had activities out the door. But um, the first one that I was really a part of the planning was um, with Judy Chicago and um, to have her in conversation with Ali Gass out of the Smart Museum. And so then to see these women, you know, and women and men that are coming to these conversations, asking these questions, and then afterwards sitting down with each other and seeing what's happening in their lives that connects them to next steps. How, what did you hear today? What are you doing in your life? How do we connect to each other and move on? Um, and and it, it really allows us to do that. And it also allows us to reach out to totally new audiences that may um not have that, that may not have uh had the same kind of um the institutional courtship where you're saying, No, we want you here, we want to hear what you're saying, we need you at this conversation, this conversation cannot happen without you. It allows us to do that as well. I think it's outstanding. And I love that you have all of this accessible on the website, too. So even going back to when, um, when Women, Arts and Social Change started in 2015, people who aren't in D.C. or who weren't there at that time can watch these conversations that are happening. Were you involved, because you're newer, were you involved in setting the current season? Or was that in place when you came on board? So that I was so glad that most of that was in place when I came on board, um, because as you can imagine, with you all planning your show, the logistics that go into, you know, getting people in place. So, so most of that was in in place, which allowed me to do to immediately step into my wheelhouse, and my wheelhouse is engagement. So, because I have these speakers here, I could look at all of the projects and all of the fresh talks that we're having, and I could say, okay, one. How do we reach out to other cities and other um, groups of women that would be interested, because we live stream it, would they be interested in, you know, having a Sunday supper where they organize it and they're able to live stream the conversation and be a part of the conversation online and be a conversation there? So I can, I can ask those bigger questions. And then the other thing that I've done um, is that I immediately could just start to work on partners. So my goal is that every Fresh Talk has a community, has a local and a national partner. This year I'm starting with local. Um, so, and when I view local, I'm like, if you're 90 minutes away from the museum, I'm, I'm looking at that as local. So between Baltimore all the way down to Richmond is pretty much what I'm looking at. So who are the organizations that are working on the issues that are being brought up in that fresh talk? And um, so for El, Tender, El Tendedero, the clothesline project with Monica Mayer, we've been working with the House of Ruth. We've been working with La Clinica de Pueblo. We had, um, she came in and did three-day workshops. She did one with artists, activists from Baltimore. Um, Forrest came down. Um, Baltimore, Aloha, they came down. Um, we had Anna. She was a, um, a a State Department intern from Bulgaria. She came. So so we had like this, um, the Living Well, they're doing a clothesline project um, as a part of the Baltimore Ceasefire Peace Challenge. Um, so that's happening in November. And then La Clinica de Pueblo is doing one. So now instead of it just happening at the museum, 
It's happening in Baltimore and D.C., so we're creating this conversation. And so I got to treat, redefine um, the position a bit, and I said, well, how does public programs become the bridge between what's happening in the museum and what's happening in the outside world? And then how do I facilitate um, the conversation between all of these? How do I connect the dots and facilitate the conversation between all of these um, these different parties? And, and I've and that's what I've been able to spend my 90 days <laughs> um, doing and in, in, in creating that, and then also working on the logistics of time and who's here. And um, but I'm lucky I have. Uh, it's a two. It's a small staff, but we're small and mighty. Um, and I work with Alicia Gregory, and she's awesome. And then we have an. You know, we usually have an intern. So we're small, but we get we get. A, I gotta get to do a lot in 90 days. Sounds like it. <laughs> I know. Well, and also, it's just so refreshing to hear about the investment that the National Museum for Women in the Arts has made in, in getting public programs back on its feet after the recession and really investing and having employees. I mean, because it's a modest-sized staff in general at the National Museum for Women in the Arts. I think are you, mm-hmm. you're on just under 50 people, maybe. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Of course, modest for us is like Claire is the only person yeah. at our museum. <laughs> so, so modest is all relative. <laughs> so a lot of, but a lot of what you're saying about making these connections with community and thinking about community more broadly is exactly the type of thing that we're trying to do in our museums, and and of course we are supported. But to see what the National Museum for Women and the Arts has been doing is really refreshing. Yeah. 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 I I think a key component to that is. Be clear um, of why you hire people and then let them do their job. And that happens here. Um, so it, it is not easy to be hired here. It is definitely an extensive interview process. And um, But when you get here, you're like, oh, I see why. Because when you you really do hit the ground running and you are charged to do your job. And you're also not up against a lot of things that women have to deal with. Um you know, I'd say in, in, in probably in my last job, 70% of my job was coming up against all the things of, of people questioning your decision-making because you're a woman and then adding on top of that for me because I'm a black woman, you know. So it was like this, like I literally felt like I needed a 50% salary increase just to deal with the shenanigans that I had to deal with just to do my job, right? So and that's why I got so much done. I got so much done in 90 days because my job is to do my job. My job is not to confront um, historic, uh, systematic, you know, just overarching uh, misogyny, racism, and patriarchy. I don't. I get. I can do my job, and that is why I was able to do. I've never to do what I've done. I've gotten more done in 90 days than I have on some jobs in a year. And I and I mean that sincerely. Oh, we believe you yeah. sincerely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we and I know that our listeners when when this drops uh they're they're going to be nodding right along and feel so inspired and hopefully that will get us all moving toward what you found. Um both in terms of, you know, how we approach our positions and how we how we address this on a bigger level within our organizations or institutions. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just, I, all I want to say is good for you. High five. Yeah. Yeah. 
so I, I, I'd like to shift again and, and think about the ways that your, uh, your position and public programs in general connects with magnetic fields. Um, so did you want to uh, share any initiatives that you're working on in relation to the exhibit? And that could connect to women, arts, and social change, or it could, it could go beyond it as well. Absolutely. Um, so, so in discussing how uh, the public programs can support exhibitions that are in the museum, I want to just give a, a brief, a brief background um, and just say that because I came out of education in the classroom and nothing gets done outside of collaboration, everything you do, you're always connecting the dots. You're like, how do I connect what these children's dreams, needs, desires are to what a business has or what a community organization has? So I'm coming from that wheelhouse of who's not at the table and how can I get them at the table? So when I walk into a space and, and, and you see um, – anything. I'm like, what are the voices that are not here? How do we get them here immediately? And what are the connections that are the whistle low-hanging fruit? So one of the first things that I did is that when I saw the, um, the when I read the information about magnetic seals, I immediately thought of, um, there's an artist in D.C. Her name is Hadia William. She does black peppery paper. Uh, she is, she does this, uh, this beautiful jewelry that is, just embodies what black abstract art is over this time over this whole you know 100 years that they're looking at and and it's showing up in her work so immediately i reached out to the gift shop and i said well there's this artist who i feel would be a great complimentary artist to show and share her jewelry and the gift shop was like oh i love it i showed them the work and now it's at the gift shop so that's one way so that is a local maker local woman maker now having her work here at the National Museum of Women and the Arts. And so that's one way you can do it. The other way is that I reached out to Howard University. Um, they're one of our one of their professors is literally having all of her classes here today because it's Howard Home uh, University Homecoming, and we had um, free admission for Howard alumni and also for students. And I said, you know what, let's go one step farther. Let me reach out to the art department and the film department, let them know what's going on, and now they're having their free classes that are here. And then there's another group of um, Howard alumni, HU alumni, um, that are like in their 70s and that are connected to museum and education, they're coming here for, you know, for, for lunch today. So that kind of stuff, you know, it may seem small that you're just connecting an artist to the exhibition or you're connecting a group of women to it, but you have to understand the power. It's always been those small groups of people that made any change or any difference in the world. And so, when you focus on who are those small people that are making a shift and in conversation with the work here already, how do I get them here and include what we're doing in their dialogue that they're already having? I think it shifts um, how people view the exhibition, and it also puts the story of the exhibition and the work that you're doing in the museum in a lot of people's mouths because now they're a part of the story and, and, and they're at the table, and that's what you want. Really, I feel that public programs is my studio practice. I treat it like my art. Like I treat it, I, I come in here and I feel that my office, my phone, my computer, and my ability to create these networks around the work that I'm doing, that is my art. That is, if you could map that and, and put that on some sort of 3D model or on a canvas, 
that whole overarching program of how many people were connected, what's the stories that are being told, what is the digital, um, I don't want to say residue, but what's left behind in the digital landscape, to me, that's my art. Well, it definitely shows. Yeah, so congratulations. I did want to, just for those listeners who may be less familiar, could you you, um, speak a little bit more about why Howard University matters to this exhibition? Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the main reasons is because Howard University was one of the – the, it was the center place of where a lot of these women were as artists and as teachers. So – if they weren't there as a student, they were there as a teacher. And and so the connections to Howard University, to Washington, D.C., um, and even to Baltimore and to MICA are, are um, it just, that's that's a huge part of who our exhibition is. And, um, and, and we also have to understand that for black women artists, up and it was very hard to be an abstract artist because every you were constantly being pushed to be literal or figurative, and you were also everyone wanted to view your work through the lens of being of strictly responding to what was happening in society because a lot of these women were creating art through the 40s, 50s, 60s up until now. And so as a, if your art did not straightforward say, this is what I'm dealing with in society, and you're saying in a way that's abstract, it was a struggle to do that. However, in Washington, D.C. and in Howard, there were communities of women where they were encouraging each other to do that, and, and they were working um, here. And so there's a tradition and there's a language for that happening here and then also, of course, out of New York. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share? Um, we had a group of students that came uh, to visit, you know, to visit the museum, and they were museum study students. And what I would say is that if you enter a space and everyone looks like you and is coming with the same lens as you, you need to get other voices at the table because you benefit from having other lenses to look through. And you cannot engage communities and you cannot engage your audiences on a higher level from your limited view. And and, and I so so that's why it's important even for me, what are the other voices to bring to the table? And I don't I don't always think that's being talked about in museum programs. Um so what I said to the group of young ladies, I said, You all need to look at your you need to look at yourselves and you need to find out whose voice is missing and I don't care if they're in the political science department, you need to find ways to engage them in your conversation because you're going to graduate at a deficit. And so I think that needs to be um, talked about. And the other thing I want to say is that um, for if there's anyone that's interested in learning more about women, arts, and social change, there's a couple of easy ways to find us. One, of course, is hashtag Fresh Talk. Um, you can find the whole digital story of what's being said online, on Twitter, on Facebook, um, on Instagram. You can also go to the National Museum of Women in the Arts, nmwa.org. And um, if you Google Fresh Talk or Women, Arts, and Social Change, um, NEMWA, it'll come up as well. And then on March 18th, we're having an amazing conversation um, about can there be gender parity in museums. And that conversation, we have some of our guests from across the pond. Um, We have, you know, the director of the Tate, the Musée Orsay, and we also have the director of the Uffizi Gallery coming to have that conversation. So 
It'd be great to see everyone there and join us for dinner as well. These women are doing such essential work, and I'm so glad we had the chance to hear a little bit more about it. We're grateful to Jenny Trainer and Milani Douglas for making the time to speak with us during this episode. We'd also like to thank Marjorie Newman, Amy Manorino, and the entire communications marketing team at NIMWA for their assistance in this episode's creation. Listeners, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, or you can listen to episodes on WVIK's website. There's an email on the website in case you'd like to contact us. And also, don't forget that we include additional information and materials on our Facebook page that relate to the episodes. So if you're interested in digging deeper, be sure to follow us. As always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WVIK for your continued support of this project. Remember that this project only exists because of listener support, so be sure to go to WVIK.org and click that donate button. A special thanks to our producer, Lacey Scarmana, and her behind-the-scenes brilliance. And this podcast would still be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Peterson Pate's design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. Last but not least, thank you to all of our listeners. Until next time. Da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da. That's good. Yeah.